Welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Technical Director at Bayside. Today, Pastor Dave and I discuss Mark chapter 1 in the series, A Son is Given. Today, we look at Jesus, the Son of God. Thank you for joining us in our conversation today. All right, so this week on the podcast, we're talking about Mark and the introduction of Jesus as the Son of God. Right there in the opening statement uh, from verse 1, Mark introduces us to who Jesus is. And before we talk about who Jesus is, uh, Pastor Dave, can you tell us who Mark is? Because we know that Matthew and John, they were disciples, and we know that Luke, he was a physician to Paul, and he was commissioned to write uh, the books of Luke and Acts. But who was Mark, and and who is the intended audience for this letter? Yeah, all of the Gospels are written either by an apostle or a close associate of the apostles. So Matthew and John, obviously, are written by apostles. Luke is written by an associate of Paul. Mark is believed to be John Mark of the Gospels' fame. Uh, maybe even that same young man who ran away in the garden uh, naked <laughs> when the Roman soldiers came and arrested Jesus. Um, his mother was believed to be uh, well-to-do and had a home in Jerusalem where the disciples often gathered. Uh, in fact, that may be the upper room or, or the place where Jesus' disciples gathered after his resurrection. Mark appears to have been a close associate of Peter. And so it's generally regarded by Bible scholars that Mark is uh, kind of giving voice to Peter's version of the gospel. Mark's intended audience, and and that's believed to be uh, Gentile Christians, uh, particularly those focused in Rome or around Rome, and that it was likely written about the time of Nero's persecution of Christians. So this would have been um, Peter's attempt through Mark, perhaps, to make a case for his Gentile readers that Jesus is worth following, even in the face of persecution that he indeed is the Son of God. And Mark was the first of the four written. It's believed to be the first of the four, yeah. There there does seem to be quite a heavy dependency on the part of Matthew in the writing of his gospel and Luke in writing his. Generally, it's, it's believed that Mark came first, probably followed by Matthew and then followed by Luke, uh, each of the, the last two uh, borrowing from some of the stories that Mark records. You find a lot of Mark in Matthew and in Luke. So let's talk about some of the passages from Mark that he gives us proof for who Jesus is. Uh, You laid out several in the sermon. uh, Mark 127, 2-7, 4-41, 6-2-3, 6-51-52, 7-37, 11-28, 14-61-62. So there's... There's a lot of things happening here. Uh, what are some of those instances that that uh, Mark is pointing at? Well, you know, right out of the gate, you have uh, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. That's in, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 and verse 11, uh, where the heavens are opened and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and, and he hears the voice from heaven saying, You are my Son, with you I'm well pleased. In the end of chapter 1 already, you have uh, Jesus teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, 
And right in the middle of the service, uh, this man with the demon starts disrupting things, and Jesus casts the demon out of a man, leaving the people there wondering, what, what is this? Uh, he, he teaches with authority and even casts out spirits. Um, the, the whole point of, of what I was getting at on Sunday was, we know from the very first verse who, who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He, and then Mark quickly establishes that at Jesus' baptism. And then for the next 14 chapters, people don't seem to get it. Um, so beginning with those people at the end of chapter 1 in the synagogue who just don't get it because uh, they, they, they see him casting out demons and teaching this way, but they don't understand who he is. Chapter 2, you go on and there's the teachers of the law grumbling about how he forgives a man of sin. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And then Jesus says, well, all right, if that doesn't persuade you, then I'll go ahead and heal him. And so he heals the paralyzed man. Uh, chapter 4, you've got the disciples themselves um, in the boat when Jesus calms the storm, and they say, who is this? Even the wind and the, and the waves obey him. You know, chapter 6, uh, he's teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. And and people are saying, where did he get these things? We, we've known him from the time he was a little squirt. In chapter 6, again, you have Jesus walking on the water to the disciples in the middle of the night, and he gets in the boat, and it says, you know, they, they didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. You know, so you have, you have series after series of, of things where Jesus does miraculous things. He, he teaches in authoritative ways, and time and time, time again, he's met with the same response, and that is, who is this guy? Where does he get this stuff? Uh, we don't we don't get him. Um, the disciples come closest to understanding him. They should have, having traveled with him for three years. Where in chapter eight, Jesus comes right out and and kind of in impatience says, "Who do people say I am?" And they say, "Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're uh, one of the prophets." And then Jesus, says, "Well, what about you? Who do you say that I am?" And that's where Peter finally gets around to saying, "You are the Christ." And and, and then Peter, Jesus tells him not to go around telling people about that. So, you know, you have, you have episode after episode of people just expressing this bewilderment about who, who is this. In chapter 11, they're upset because he overturns the tables of the money changers and, and the chief priests and, and the high priests and, and teachers of the law ask him, uh, where'd you get authority to do this? And instead of saying, well, you know, if my father in heaven gave me this authority, he, um, he plays a little coy with them, refuses to answer them because they won't answer his question about where John, John the Baptist got his authority. Uh, he easily could have said, well, I got this authority from my father in heaven. But he knew that was a conclusion they weren't prepared to draw. You get to chapter 14 and the high priest comes right out and asks him at his trial, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Uh, in other words, you're the son of God. And Jesus finally says, yeah, I am. And and then they, they like go berserk. They tear their garments and and say, you know, you've heard it yourself. He's, he's called himself uh, the son of God. He's, he's a blasphemer. He needs to die. And so they, uh, they kneel him to a cross. Uh, you know, not taking at face value all of the proofs he offered for three years miracles and calming the storms even raising the dead and and they couldn't they couldn't accept that this is who he was yeah, it's hard for us to to sometimes see those things but uh let, let's focus a little bit on one of those uh times john records 
in chapter 12 that uh, one of the times that the heavens opened and the, and the voice descended, Jesus is speaking that now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Uh, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then at that point, a voice from heaven came down saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then that time it's recorded that the, the crowd stood there and some heard it and some said that it had thundered. Uh, and others had said that a, and an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus' response was that this voice has come for your sake and not for mine. So that kind of gives us a little insight as to God was not allowing everybody to hear it. You actually made mention of that. You posed that question in the sermon, wondering how many people at the baptism heard. Yeah, we, we can't be sure because it only says in Mark 1 that that Jesus saw the Spirit descend and heard the voice from heaven. And then in John chapter 1, it says of John the Baptist that he saw the Spirit descend and on that basis concluded that this was the Son of God because God had told him ahead of time, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend, that's that's the Son of God. And when he saw that, then John took that as an indication. It doesn't say that John heard the voice. I mean, we could assume that he did, but we don't know that for sure because we only have uh, from the uh, from Mark chapter 1 that Jesus heard the voice. Um yeah, so it's it's interesting. You got this this kind of dance that happens all the way through the Gospels, not just Mark, but all the Gospels, of um, you know where it seems pretty obvious who who Jesus is. Um, yeah, you know he he heals people, and which hasn't been done in a long time. Well, it hasn't you know, right. Not only has it not been done in a long time, but the prophets specifically said that when Messiah comes, the blind will see and the lame will walk. Well. Here comes Jesus, and guess what? The blind are seeing, and the lame are walking, and um, and and some of these people get pretty excited about that, right? And but Jesus says, uh, "Keep this to yourself. Don't don't be telling anybody." Um, and, and similarly, you know, why why didn't this voice plainly say to everybody who was there, "This is the Son of God"? Why did some only hear kind of rumblings like thunder, and others heard the voice clearly? Um, it's it seems like. It, this is being set up in such a way as, as to ensure that, um, you know, believers, those who are already committed to Christ, uh, will clearly discern, and and others uh, will remain in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Well, for one thing, Jesus, Jesus was very careful about going around saying, "I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ." Because people had all kind of weird ideas about that, what that meant, you know. So from Jesus' point of view, he he didn't want people out there ahead of him promoting him as the Christ when he he what he knew he wasn't going to be the kind of Christ they wanted. Right. Uh, you know, the Roman uh, conqueror and the and the great king who'd sit on the throne and take over Israel. He knew that's not what he was there to do. So that you know, from Jesus' standpoint, I can understand why he was telling people. Yeah, uh, you you've seen it for yourself, but don't go around telling anybody. Uh, that didn't stop a lot of people; they just went out and spread it all the more. Well, it's kind of hard. You see a miracle, you, yeah. you, you do something, you, know, you see something great happen, you you want it. Right. Uh, you know the old-fashioned social media. Right. But then, on the other side of things, you know, I guess from the viewpoint of God the Father, there was a grand plan that was being executed here, and. And part part of the fulfillment of that plan 
required that Jesus be put to the cross. And who are the ones that had authority to do that? Well, it was the high priests in collaboration with the Romans. Um, so there, you know, where does, where does their own hardness of heart and God keeping them in the dark, where does one leave off and the other begin? I don't know. Uh, that's why God's God and I'm not. He, he's got that figured out. But the point is that, that their hardness of heart, um, for which God holds them responsible, it's not like, like they're off the hook uh, because he kept them in the dark. Their, their own hardness of heart condemns them, but it also is the vehicle by which God's grand plan for all of us is fulfilled. Um, you know, they never, they never do wake up to who he was. They put him to death, and, and you know, that provides our atonement and ultimately sets the stage for the resurrection. Jesus began many of his teachings by saying, let him who has ears to hear. Yep. Paul talks about it in another way in uh, 2 Corinthians, that uh, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Yep. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the, the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Yeah, and, and even in the use of parables, right, Jesus tells his disciples that, yeah, you get these. That's good. That shows that you belong to me. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to understand these things, and that's on purpose. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, there, there was kind of a veiling of the truth to those who, who just didn't have eyes to see, who didn't have ears to hear, uh, who would harden their hearts and, and you know, never, never believe. Uh, one of Isaiah's prophecies with God was that make the heart of this people dull, and this is chapter 6. Uh, and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Yeah, and, and that, that kind of teaching in the prophets, I think, is, is consistent with what's happening in Jesus' time, too. The, 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 the prophets kind of had this, this point of view of, you should have known better. Yeah. You, 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 shouldn't, you shouldn't have been doing these things. And, and the way you're conducting yourself shows that you don't really know me. And so guess what? Uh, part of your judgment is, I'm not going to make this easy on you. I'm not going to explain everything to you. I'm going to leave you in the dark because, you know, that's kind of where you've chosen to, to sit. And, and I think there's some of that going on here, too, in Jesus' time, especially with the Sadducees who, uh, who held the high priesthood and, you know, were basically in collusion with Rome. And, and they weren't particularly godly men. Uh, they, were, they, they were pretty corrupt and... and uh, you know, it was, it was more about the politics of staying in charge and, and uh, collecting taxes and, and, and so forth than it was really about being spiritual shepherds of Israel. They bring it on themselves by their own hardness of heart that doesn't really care about knowing God. Uh, and so, you know, when the sun comes along, uh, it's not like God's going to say, hey, guys, uh, I want to clue you in here. Uh, They've already kind of made up their minds, and and he's going to he's going to as part of their judgment, he's going to keep them in the dark. Yeah, uh, we had discussed in our staff dev devotions this morning about how much people didn't like Jesus, and to me, it just seems that it's only by divine intervention that the people didn't kill Jesus sooner. Yeah, well, there were a number of occasions where they did want to. You know, yeah, John the, John eight was one of those. Yeah, he, people in Nazareth wanted to push him over the cliff, you know, yeah. and he walks through the crowd. Uh, which is one of those mysterious passages. What, is, what does that mean? Did he just kind of 
dematerialize and walk through, or did he kind of, by virtue of his physical strength, push his way through? We don't we don't really know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were there were a number of occasions where they wanted to kill him. The high priest in particular would be very careful how they did that because uh, he was popular with a lot of the people, and and you know if they turned on him, well, the people might just turn on them. And, you know, part of their job, their deal with the Romans was you keep a lid on things for us. You keep, you keep the populace, you know, sort of calm and uh, we'll let you stay in power. And so, you know, if they started an uprising by virtue of what was a perceived mistreatment of Jesus, then, you know, it could get them in trouble and, and cause them to lose favor with the Romans. So they had, they had a lot at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, you know, they looked for that opportune time um, to arrest him when he wasn't among the crowds. That's why they were willing to pay Judas off and so forth. Yeah, there, there's just an interesting part in this that, that the high priests play where they're really pawns in, in the fulfillment of God's grander plan, but they somehow think they're in charge. We still do that today. We think we're in charge. but. Yep. We're, we're all a, a part of this greater plan. And back to your, your comment about what we said in staff devotions this morning, it just it really struck me today as I was reading that devotional that um, here you had the Son of God. And so so many people hated him. Yeah. You know, and, and if the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, if Jesus can say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what does that say about how people really feel about God himself? Right. Uh, if, if, if God in human flesh is sitting in front of me and I can't stand his guts, wow, that's a scary thing because that says I'm, I'm in a bad way when it comes to God the Father. It means that, that uh, I, I don't really love him. I don't care about him. I don't want him in my life. And essentially, that's that was the response of the of the religious leadership in Jerusalem. They couldn't abide him. Why? Well, because to acknowledge him for who he was meant that they'd they'd have to step off the throne, <laughs> yeah, and and let somebody else be in charge. And they were not about to do that. And isn't that our dilemma? It is for each and every one of us. Am I going to acknowledge Jesus for who he is, step off the throne, and let him reign? Or am I going to stubbornly insist that I've got to have my way? In which case, I mimic the high priests. Yeah. Yeah. So when Jesus did die, uh, it was the Roman centurion that, that made the remark that this must have been the Son of God because he had seen probably thousands of people hung on a cross. And he was Jesus was unique in, in the way that he went to it. Uh, the prophecy said that he would be a lamb led to slaughter. He fulfilled that. He went peacefully to to his murder. Yeah, you know, and, and I just love, this is a, a little bit of a literary device that Mark uses that I just think is genius, right? So, so there is this certainty about Jesus' identity in chapter 1. And then you go for 14 chapters and nobody gets it. You know, they're all, they're all struggling to understand who he is. Who is this guy? Uh, even the wind and the waves obey him. Where does he get these things? Who does he think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? All these, all these statements that are made questioning his identity uh, to the point where the, the chief priests and teachers of the law who should have known best because, you know, Jesus himself says, you scour the scriptures to get clues about who the Messiah is. 
and yet you don't even see him when he's standing right in front of you. Have you not read? Yeah, have you not that, read? That's that's kind of an insult to yeah, them. Yeah, it's a big insult because, of course, they've read, but but they're not getting it. And and who who in <laughs> who in all of the Gospel of Mark makes the clearest, most direct statement, other than the voice from heaven in chapter one, who makes the clearest statement of his identity? It's a Roman soldier. It's a pagan who, who's standing there watching him die. And and you're right. It's essentially I've never seen anybody die like this, uh, you know. And 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 this this guy is out of the ordinary. He's like nobody I've ever seen. Truly, he was the son of God. Yeah. So you he, so you got him coming back and and saying what Mark has been saying all along, but nobody else has been getting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I think the the position that the centurion is in uh, is a great example for us that when the world looks at us as Christians, when we suffer, that that's what they should see. They should see, they should see Christ in us. And oftentimes that's not what they're seeing in, in America. Yeah, you know, that what they see a lot of times from us is a lot of backtalk and, and you know, claiming our rights and, and clamoring for power and things like that. What the centurion saw in Jesus is what the Romans for the next several hundred years would see in the Christians that they persecuted. Over and over and over again, you have in church history accounts of of Christians going to their death in ways that just blew away the Romans because nobody else died that way. Nobody else died with that kind of confidence and that conviction that, yeah, you can you can take my life, but I'm I don't have any fear. I'm going to be with the Lord. Um, and and you know there there are fantastic stories of of the bravery of Christians that actually led to the conversion of of Roman soldiers and and the, those who persecuted them uh, because of of the way they faced um, death unafraid. Uh, and so in that respect, yeah, it, it's it's kind of a uh, an echo of what happens there at Calvary, where Jesus willingly goes to the cross and gives his life and dies in such a way that you have a Roman soldier saying, truly, this is the Son of God. And, and yeah, when, when believers are pushed to the limit and made to suffer for the sake of Jesus, um, to, to exhibit that kind of Christ-like behavior, to do as Jesus did there as he hung on the cross, can be a very, very powerful testimony to the world. Um, far more powerful than trying to stand up and argue or shoot out angry tweets or post things on Facebook that are nasty. Yeah. Not that, not that we just sit there and take it. Not that we don't, we don't advocate for, you know, our rights, but I think we have, we have privileges in our society that, that people in, in Jesus day just didn't have. Um, but we, we always have to do it in a respectful way, a Christ-like way. And, um, and, and probably more of us need to read church history and, and read about the bravery of those early Christians uh, and, and understand that, you know what, uh, it, it's, it's extremely rare that Christians will ever be in positions of power in this world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we need to do, rather, is learn how to be the church when we're not in power, right. uh, to be Christ-like in the face of a society that has has increasingly turned its back on God. And then don't be surprised if we're just going about our business acting like Jesus and people hate us. Yeah. <laughs> because 
because, uh, you know, that's what happened to him, right? And, and Jesus himself told us, you know, don't be surprised when that happens. Uh, they're not going to like you. Uh, they didn't like me. They're not going to like you. Uh, and and so um, uh, that that's that's kind of hard for us as Christians in America, who for many 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 years, in fact, for most of our lifetimes, uh, we've we've lived in a position of favor in our culture, and now we don't. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Well, we have plenty of examples in Jesus Himself, and then in in the lives of His followers, Book of Acts, early history of the church. Uh, you know, they, they sort of show us the way of how to be the church in a, in a time when, when you're not in power and you're not in favor and people don't like you anymore. Yeah. We can't just choose to be Christ-like when we're flipping tables. Yeah. 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 All right. So uh, we should move on to what it means to declare that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a big deal. You know, it's... Not just well, he you know he was a he was a wise person. He was a prophet. There was there's something more important here. So you made three points about uh, what it means to declare that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is in eternal relation with God, he is the perfect revelation of God, and he alone provides our redemption to God. Right. All three are, are important, um, you know, to understand that he's in eternal relation with God. Well, you know, I mean, you can't get much clearer about that than John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were created. Nothing has been created, uh, you know, without him. Um, it, it's it's very clear that when when Jesus affirms his identity as the son of God, he's not just saying, well, he is a son of God, but he is the son of God. In fact, somebody asked me after the sermon about, well, when it says he's the only begotten, uh, that sounds like he was born, he was created. And that's really a misunderstanding of, of that word. Uh, monogenes in, in, um, in Greek really has more of the connotation of one and only, the unique. So it's, it's not about his birth being begotten by God. It's about his uniqueness before God or to God, uh, that there's no one like him. He's, he's the one and only. So if you're going to talk about sons, he is the one and only. Uh, we're kind of copies right. of, of that. Uh, he is, he's uniquely God the Son, which means that he shares in all the divine attributes, all the divine glory of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's, he's uh, a member of the Trinity, uh, he's always been. He's always existed with God. Uh, so it's not like he came, you know, he was born in Bethlehem, but he, he has existed long before that from all eternity. He's, he's been uh, with the Father. So that just speaks to, to the depth of his relationship with God and, and why, for instance, at his lowest moment, who does he turn to but his father, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, it was it was most natural of all for him to turn to that one he's always known, uh, and and has been with from before the beginning of creation. So he is in eternal relation with God. He is um, uh, the exact representation of God. Um, Hebrews chapter one uh, talks about that that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. 
Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, that's just how, how uh, closely he's identified with God. Um, and, and that's important for us to understand, that if, you, if we were sitting across from Jesus right now, having a conversation with him, sitting at his feet, learning from him, we, we would have 100% of God present uh, being represented to us in a way that we could understand with, without, you know, human flesh on, without, without being clothed in flesh. It'd be hard for us to get our mind around God because nobody's ever seen God the Father, but God the only Son has made him known. And so, so you know, you want to know what God is like? Study the Gospels, read, read the pages of God, the Gospels about who Jesus was, because he has shown us who God is more clearly than anyone ever could. Um, and then he, he's our, our, uh, the one who redeems us to God. Um, yeah, there, there you have really the magnitude of, of his sacrifice, the worth of his life, right? So he becomes a man because on the cross he's going to represent humanity. He remains God the whole time, never relinquishes his deity. He is God in human flesh. And that speaks to the, the immensity of the sacrifice that's being made there for us. The God, the eternal son, is giving up his life as payment for all of us. There's No one else could do that. Right. The magnitude of our sins. Yeah, the magnitude of our yeah. sins is so great. No, no, other, no other sacrifice, no other price could be paid that would be sufficient to, to atone for us. Yeah, I had a seminary professor who would put it that the that God had to supply the sacrifice because uh, we were insufficient there's nothing that we could bring the payment of the uh, lesser couldn't satiate the cost right right yeah think about the greatest human being other than Jesus who ever lived right well even that person was a sinner <laughs> you know at most you know, you if if you could give your life to pay for sin, well, you could give your own life to pay for your own sin, but you wouldn't be able to pay for anybody else's sin, and even that wouldn't be sufficient um, to to pay for your sin. So yeah, so the the uh, the the mastery of the plan, the 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 amazing genius of it, of you know God sending His own Son to become one of us, to represent us in the giving of his life of infinite worth to pay the ransom of our sin. <laughs> That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. So as we try to wrap our minds around that, uh, there's a couple people who have uh, tried to contextualize that. Uh, you mentioned Bono, a lead singer from YouTube, not something you commonly hear in a church pulpit. No, but Bono is a is a... Christ follower, uh, he he is not ashamed to identify himself that way. Um, he's always quick to say, "I haven't arrived," um, but he he understands who Jesus is, and and uh, understands his need of a savior in Christ. And so, yeah, he makes this he makes this interesting statement. Uh, not the first to make a statement like that, but he's he's a contemporary that a lot of us know. And says, uh, hey, you know, you think Jesus is just a good man? He was a great teacher, a moral philosopher. That ain't going to cut it. Because he went around saying he was the son of God. And, and he was killed for that. 
And you're not going to say that kind of thing unless it's either actually true or you're insane, you know, like Charlie Manson type insane. And, and his conclusion then is to say, uh, I have a hard time believing that, that someone who for 2,000 years has been changing lives uh, was a nutter, you know, was a, was a crazy man. Um, so, you know, as, as you pointed out earlier, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis said something very similar in Mere Christianity, uh, where he talks about you, there are basically three options. Either, either he was a liar and an amazingly good liar that so many people would be deceived, or he was insane, like somebody on the level of somebody who imagines he's a fried egg, or he was telling the truth. And, and Lewis makes the, the point that, again, like, like Bono does, who could change the world if they were lying or, or insane? He's got to be telling the truth. So let's think of why that is important to the Christian. And one of the verses that comes to mind is John 3.18. You'd, you'd listed it in the sermon notes. Uh, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Yeah, so it comes down to that choice. Um, are, are you going to believe Jesus for who he claimed to be and, and believe in, in what he claimed to do. Uh, you know, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, he says in, in Mark 10, 45. Uh, so it really comes down to that, doesn't it? It comes down to you either dismiss him as a nutcase or somebody who's insane or or you try to make believe that uh, he's just uh, you know a great teacher and a philosopher. Um, in, in which case, you know, you, you choose not to believe. And John says, well, then you're already condemned because you've chosen not to believe in the Son of God yeah. who, who came to give his life for you. But if you, if you do believe, you have eternal life, you know, John 3.16. Um, you know, John in 1 John 5.11 and following says something very similar this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. That's where you're going to find it. Whoever has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then he closes that letter by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that to me is, is so powerful because it speaks to that whole question that so many people worry about even as christians have i done enough yeah have i been good enough have i gone to church enough yeah doubt is is yeah. out there everywhere yeah and and john says no forget about it it's not about what you can do it's not about whether you've done enough it's whether you believe in jesus as the son of god who loved you and gave his life for you you know if you believe that then you can know that you have eternal life there doesn't have to be guesswork about it there's no no doubt about it it, it doesn't depend on you it depends on on Jesus and whether you've received for yourself what he did for you. And that should be the relief, to know that it's not on you yep. to save yourself, that this is all done done for you freely. That's right. That's right. Um, next week, we are in... Well, it'll be Luke's gospel, 
And um, uh, so far we've talked about Matthew, uh, Jesus as the uh, son of David, the royal son. Uh, this last week um, was Jesus, the son of God, the divine son. Next week is uh, Jesus, the son of Mary. So uh, looking at, at the uh, birth story of, of Jesus and uh, thinking about how Jesus grew up and was part of a human family. Having that relationship with him, that's that makes it easier to to believe in who he was, is if we recognize him as he was both God and man. Yeah, he, fully God, fully man. <laughs> he had a mom and he had a, an earthly dad. He had brothers and sisters and he, he grew up in a in a working class home and he suffered hunger and thirst and he, there were times when he was tired and he was tempted, you know, in every way, just as we are. Uh, so yeah, we'll be talking about Jesus as the son of Mary this week. Sounds great. Thank you, Pastor. And that's going to wrap for this podcast. All right. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast this week. We appreciate the time you take out of your week to spend listening to our discussion. Please check out our website, BaysideChapel.org, for the most up-to-date information about our Christmas services. We have one service on Friday evening, two services on Saturday afternoon, and one special service Christmas Day, as well as one service on New Year's Day. Please make sure you check out our website for times and children's ministry availability. And have a blessed week.